You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. And this is episode 11. And so we've got a, a few things to come up with. We, we, we're coming off um, Detroit CES. And uh, there's been Mustang news. So we'll get to that. And we've got some other uh, more fun stuff this week so we can uh, throw shade. Uh, but in the, in the meantime, in the first place, Throwing Mother. shade? You'd yeah. never do something like that, would you, Dan? No. Me? I <laughs> I prefer to... Uh, I can't even come up with this late. Uh, anyway, let's just talk about what we're driving. And so you have the car that everybody wants to know. This is this is a future classic. It is lusted after. It's quite an exotic. Uh, why don't you just fill us in? Um, yeah, the, the the car I just uh, turned back in um, is none of the things that you just described. Uh, <laughs> But it, it is one of the best-selling cars in America and, and around the world, for that matter. Uh, it's the uh, Toyota Corolla XLE, um, which when uh, my wife walked out uh, the door the other last week when it first arrived and saw it for the first time, she said, wow, what's that? It looks so old. Um, and it's you know brand new Corolla. Um, and it was in this uh, shade of um, sort of grayish brown, brown or more like a brownish gray um, I don't know what it was, but it was, let's just say that pretty much everything about this car was uninspired. I was just um, going to say that doesn't, that sounds like it could not have been more uninspiring. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the standard 1.8 liter four cylinder that they have in all Corollas these days. Um, and a CVT that has all the characteristics that make most people hate CVTs. Um, you know, it doesn't, it, unlike Nissan, where most of their CVTs use a control strategy of simulating a, a stepped gear, you know, step ratio, tra- standard step ratio transmission. This one just does the, the conventional motorboating effect, you know, where when you um, <laughs> when you squeeze the gas pedal, uh, the engine revs up to about thirty five hundred RPM and stays there and drones on as, as you slowly accelerate up to speed. Um, you know, it's it's just. There's just nothing exciting about this car, um, you know, but the reality is that, you know, most people really don't care, which well, is what I was going to say. Yeah. You know, uh, that, I mean, that, that's why I mean, that's that's why autonomous cars are probably going to be so popular, because reality is, unlike us, most people don't care about driving. You know, they just want to get in, you know, go to wherever it is they're going uneventfully, you know, get there safely, use, you know, as little gas as possible not have to make a lot of trips in for service and 
you know, I mean, the reason why Toyota has the reputation it does, they do is because, you know, they make, you know, solid, reliable cars that, you know, for the most part are pretty unexciting, um, unexciting in a good way, but also, you know, they avoid bad sorts of excitement as well, um, which is what most regular consumers want. And that's why, you know, Toyota sells, you know, 300, 350,000 Corollas a year in the United States alone. And it's, it's been one of the best selling cars globally for decades. Well, the thing, so people don't care necessarily about driving excitement, but the things they do care about are features and styling. You know, you buy a car, it's, it's a big ticket item and it's, it's something that, uh, you know, does have a certain image and prestige attached to it. And so it was interesting to hear that your wife felt that it looks old because I think that actually the Corolla looks pretty good now. Um, since they've restyled it for its, its current generation and it hasn't really been on the market that long. It It's, it's a sharp looking car on the outside. What's always let me down are their, their features, their tech and the interior quality. And at that price point, uh, you know, just, just Toyota feels a little bit like it was, you know, made by Tupperware. Uh, and the features are like their Entune system isn't great to use. It's okay, I guess. So like, is it enticing on either of those levels? Um, you know, it did have a fair number of features. Uh, you know, it had uh, radar adaptive cruise control and lane keeping system. Um, you know, it didn't have navigation, uh, but that's fine. You know, I mean, but they all know. have um, now, don't they have like the... Uh, what is it? It's like the navigation pilot or something that, that you can actually like use nav on your phone, but pipe it through the screen. Um, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I didn't try the, the Entune app this time. I think you may be able to do that through the Entune app. Uh, uh, yeah, so yeah. You, ha you have to use a, a special Toyota app um, with your phone connected to the car in order to do that. So, um, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was fine. You know, um, the uh, the infotainment, you know, the the Intune infotainment system, you know, is, you know, fairly responsive. Um, you know, there was nothing. It wasn't too cluttered. You know, it wasn't wasn't a problem to use. Didn't crash or anything. Um, you know, it was not, you know, by no means the, the worst system I've ever tried. Um, you know, and, you know, right now, um, you know, this is their their older system, which as new as their new models are coming out, starting with the Camry this year, which they introduced last week at the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, the Camry will be the, the first of the new models to get their new Entune 3 system, which has been completely revamped, um, you know, and it, that one will be the first to have um, what they call smart device link in it, which uh, is the the open source version of Ford's sync app link. Uh, and that will have support for controlling some smartphone apps uh, through the, the car interface, but that's not available on this, on this Corolla yet, but you know, overall, you know, it had a decent number of features. Uh, it had heated seats, which was nice when it was cold last week. Uh, you know, and you know, the, I think, you know, there's, like I said, there's nothing exciting about it in either a good way or a bad way. You know, I think if you if you bought, you know, if you're just looking for basic transportation, um, you know, you can you can get one of these. They, they start about, you know, 18 and a half. The one I had was a the XLE trim, which is kind of the higher trim level uh, and out the door. It was about twenty three and a half. 
which, you know, considering the, the driver assist features it has is not an entirely bad price. You know, on the other hand, for the same price, you could buy a Honda Civic, which you is get a Camry. Um, well, yeah, I mean, but you're not gonna, you're not going to get all the fe- all those features on a Camry at that right. price point. So it but, does sound. You know, in, does, in the same segment, you're going to get you can get a Civic, yeah, uh, which does have you know the same kind of features. I think it's you know probably it's a lot more interesting to look at. It certainly drives a lot better, um, and you know, and and there's other options as well. The Mazda three is another great option. You know, in that same price range, that um, you know has has similar features and really drives a lot better you know yeah, i mean i think there's pretty much any of the other choices in this segment barring like the nissan uh is it the Sentra? they still yeah, make Sentra. the Sentra? yeah oh yeah they just they just refreshed the Sentra for 2017 right so um while there's that tinge of renault in the Sentra, i think that's <laughs> in, in the the Corolla and the Sentra are probably the two least interesting, least exciting vehicles in their class. Um, but it's so it sounds like, too, though, uh, one of the things you miss out on with some of the other competition is that uh, if you're looking for driver assist features, uh, I think this year, really 2017, 2018, Toyota is really making its um, Toyota Safety Sense uh, system, the TSSP um system or or features available like across all its models so that means all of their cars have you know uh, pre-collision pedestrian detection lane departure warning uh the automatic high beams and um dynamic radar so cruise is that did that did yours have all that stuff yeah it did uh so you know they back in 2014 they announced that they were going to start rolling out all the driver assist features across their entire model lineup um in in t- by 2016 and they've done that uh so yeah the the car i drove had all those features they're not standard uh they're not all standard on the uh on the corolla or you know their their lower end cars like the uh, the rs but um you know they are available across all those models which is which is a good thing i mean that's that's something that you know is fairly new in the last two or three years to be able to get those kinds of features on you know a basic compact car uh so you know that I, you can't complain about that you know it's just the, the basic platform itself is uninspiring yeah i mean it's it's fine it's basic yeah. it's yeah well there's no, like i said there's nothing inherently terrible about it right it's just you know if you like to drive if, if you want basic transportation that is unlikely to cause you any grief you know with having you know, unplanned trips to the dealer for warranty service, um, you know, leave you stranded on the side of the road, things like that. The Corolla probably will not do that to you. It'll probably run fine for, you know, 200,000 miles. You know, it's not going to excite you, but it's it's not going to it's not going to cause you any grief either. So that's what a lot that's what a lot of customers want. Right. It's it's a modern day Plymouth Valiant. And there's nothing yes. wrong with that. Uh, Absolutely it, not. Like it's just not for me. Yeah. I, it, so think about this though. The the first one of the first press cars I drove um, was a, and the first Corolla I drove was a XRS. Um, so it wasn't this generation. It was the previous generation. It was it was basically supposed to be some kind of like high performance thing. It was the, the Corolla with the Camry engine. 
um, man, was that car bland. <laughs> <laughs> and so this one actually, you know, of course they always make it look great on the, the website and stuff, but you know, it, I like what they've done with the, the interior. The design is a little bit more interesting. Um, it, it does. Yeah, I mean, have, everything's you know, well laid out, you know, it's yeah. functional. Um, the, the exterior looks good. Materials are better than they have been. It's a big car. So if you, if it's. Yeah. Roomy you know, enough for, for five. Right. Like if if you're just starting out and you're getting a solid basic car, you know, but you still want to hang out with your friends and go places. Uh, th- th- this is a good car for that. You know, it has a, a usable trunk. It's you, you could spend a lot more on something with a, a better respected brand and have a car that's just nowhere near as functional. Um, right. You know, and, you know, it's also fuel efficient. I got 31 miles per gallon on, with this thing. You know, and I mean, given gas is cheap right now, and it's probably not at the top of your list of priorities, but it never hurts to to have, you know, decent fuel efficiency because you never know when things are going to change. Yeah. Although I feel I feel weird now. We just spent the last five minutes defending the Corolla, which everybody loves to hate. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not yeah. it's not the car. That's it, 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 it is what it is. And, and, you know, for the right customers, that's a good thing. Yeah. I'm just not the right customer for it. And, it, and it's funny, actually, too. We'll, we'll see this this sort of uh, conundrum um, come back later on in this episode. Um, we'll get to questions. Um, yeah. So. Uh, so what about you? Over- oh, yeah. I was Well, I was just going to say, like, what's your, your overall impression of it is that it's, you know, it's the solid car for the masses. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and we are and not I the just, masses. No. <laughs> um, so for me. I'm driving, or I, I actually just handed back today the uh, uh, the Dodge Charger. Uh, I believe it's an SXT rally with the rally package and all-wheel drive um, in beautiful bright yellow. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, you know, we had that question last week of uh, what car would do we always recommend, but we wouldn't ever buy. This is a little bit different. This is more of like a car I don't always recommend, but I might buy. Um, I'm not in any danger of buying it now, uh, and it's starting to feel its age, but it's not a bad car. It drives pretty well. Somebody sweated the details on this car, and they continue to do it because it's it's been around for 10 years in, what, three kind of different generations now? Um and and even when it launched, you know, a, a decade ago, like when the, the 300 and originally originally they had the, the Chrysler 300 and the uh, Dodge Magnum, the wagon. Yeah. Um, and when those launched in about 2005, I yeah, think, I say five, yeah. five or six um, at that time, you know, they were based on what was then the previous generation Mercedes E-Class platform because it was still Daimler Chrysler at that time. So, so it was already that, an old platform. Yeah. Is that like. How much Mercedes is? Did you ever get a solid answer to that? Like how much Mercedes there is in this car? Yeah, I, I don't think that there's there, there's not much in the way of interchangeable parts. You know what it was. Uh, you know, you had I think you had maybe some floor pan pieces, and it was more a matter of the like the suspension layout and architecture, um, the the rear axle design, so things like that. You know, I think maybe some of the steering parts. So some of the some of the basic underpinnings, you know, originated from the uh, I forget I can't remember which generation of E class, but you know it would have been 
the E-Class that launched in the late 90s, like around 98 or 99. That's um, um, that's what, W126 or something? It could be something like that. I'm going to I'm going to look it up now. <laughs> so but, you know, it it was a good, solid platform at the time and it remains. So, I mean, it, you know, Chrysler has continued to tweak it and refine it, um, you know, and it was it was always a, a good a good basic, you know, good uh, f- foundation to work from, um, you know, rear wheel drive and, and all wheel drive is an option that's, you know, it's been available through most of its history. Um, a variety of engines from V sixes all the way up to, you know, you can, you can get a Hellcat charger, you know, with 700 horsepower. Uh, so, you know, what, whatever you're looking for, you know, it's, it's got something there for you. You know, if you're looking for a big comfy, um, rear wheel drive, you know, big comfy, you know, classic American sedan that is surprisingly capable and, um, you know, looks pretty good, too. Yeah, it's it, it is all of those things, uh, even with this. So this has the V6, which is plenty powerful here. Uh, I think it's got about I think it has an even 300 horsepower the way I drove it, which is it's it's pl- it's fine. It's plenty. Um, yeah. And it returned about 22 miles per gallon. Not bad for a car this size. And it, it you know, it, it goes along the highway like a a gunboat. You know, it just it, it will cruise at 80 miles an hour a day all day long. I, um, I'm looking here too. I think so. It was the first generation E class, the like E class, E class, uh, that came out in, um, I guess the late 80s. That's the W124, no, that- and this is not that card. So the second yeah. generation was like W210, third was the W211. W210 went from 95 to 2002, so that must be. I think that's the one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, it's it's a, it's an old platform, but it's not necessarily bad that it's old. And I'm impressed that they've, you know, kept it up. Uh, it it still feels pretty solid. Uh, there's certainly cars that are in that class that just feel a lot more rock solid. But you do get to a point of sort of diminishing returns on that after a while, too. Like, it's unless you're driving these cars back to back to back, like we are, you're probably not going to notice that, you know, yeah. Okay. So the platform feels like it's 20 years old. Cause it is, but um, overall it's pleasing. I did notice a little bit of, of noise from the suspension over crappy pavement. Um, I don't know if that's just cause it was all wheel drive uh, and it was like extra travel or something, or if it's just, you know, um, it had about 400 miles on it. So and I put about 400 miles on it. So um, maybe it just needs to wear in and quiet down a little bit. I don't know. That's, that sounds like kind of an excuse, but overall, you know, it's a, it's a solid car. It's not, you know, it's another one of those things that like, it's been around for so long. It's easy to forget, um, but it's, it's well-equipped. It's very comfortable. Um, I, I don't like the, uh, the latest generation of you connect quite as much as I used to. Um, cause you got to use the screen for all kinds of stuff, like the HVAC controls. So if you want to move air around and stuff, you're looking at the screen and poking at it while you're trying to drive. Um, the eight speed auto is really good. Um, the visibility is kind of not that great, but, uh, y- you know, if you wanted this kind of car, this is, there's not too many of these left. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, these are basically the last of their breed, you know, of big, 
you know, rear wheel drive or all wheel drive, you know, classic American sedans. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, as, as the market moves away from sedans in general or for cars in general, you know, you, you don't find many like this, you know, and, and GM is discontinuing the, uh, the Chevy SS. That makes me so uh, sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Ford doesn't build anything like this anymore and hasn't for a long time. You know, I, uh, last year, you know, I had to, uh, take a business trip down to Louisville, Kentucky, you know, and I drove, um, uh, a 300 with this same powertrain an all wheel drive V6, uh, Chrysler 300. And, you know, I mean, it's a great road trip car, you know, yeah. big and comfy, um, you know, and reasonably fuel efficient. Uh, you know, it's just, it was a really nice ride, you know, it, you know, it's, it's fairly hefty. It, you know, it was like 40, you know, a little less than 4,300 pounds, but you know, it, it doesn't drive like a, a two ton car, you know, it's, it's surprisingly nimble for its size. Yeah, it is. It does. It handles pretty well. It rides pretty well. I did. There were some complaints about, you know, from rear seat passengers about the angle of the, the, the seat back. Um, so that's something to, to keep in mind. You should try all, all seating positions if you're, uh, you know, looking at the car. And, I you know, it's a good looking car in the way it trimmed the way I got it because it has the it had the rally package, which is, you know, some cosmetic stuff uh you know blacked out grill um it had a black roof it with the bright yellow that kind of contrast looked really good it had 19 inch wheels um so yeah it's it's sharp i, I mean i would not pick the bright yellow <laughs> but <laughs> okay and with the rally you get the the you know the flappy paddles on the wheel if that's your thing and it, it is nice too when you put it in over into manual mode it will just let you bounce off the rev limiter uh yep which is what it absolutely should do instead of shifting for you i don't want my car to second guess me um yeah why not everybody else does yeah of course they do (laughs) (laughs) um you know it's it's a decent car i mean i'm i'm sort of struggling for a whole lot more to say about it because it's it's just it's one of those things like we've covered this territory with this car i i also did notice that um chrysler has a nice they have a pretty good paint shop operation because you know yellow it's easy to look and see like all kinds of orange peel and this is this is kind of minutia i know but i've noticed lately you look at some uh vehicles that we get in the fleets like uh nissans uh the paint seems awfully thin and there's lots of orange peel and uh that shouldn't be in this day and age like body fit and finish has really really jumped since say the year 2000 i remember like gms used to have the worst paint um and fit and finish you know you you could just they had the worst paint jobs and part of that was if you read the the lutz book um was that they they were using crappy paint to cover up crappy body fit <laughs> and and so they they fixed the body fit and then they they fixed the paint too so I, again this is the things that i notice on a 45 mile drive into the office so uh, I don't know if that squares with what you've heard, but I, I overall build quality seems pretty good on these. Yeah, no, um, like I said, I, you know, I didn't notice any issues. You know, I've driven both the, I had both the Charger and the 300 uh, at various times last year. And yeah, I mean, they were solidly built, really good fit and finish, you know, nice materials, which, you know, was a, a really pleasant change from the first time that I drove, um, you know, Charger, you know, back in, you know, the latter part of the last decade, you know, right, right before, uh, um, Chrysler went bankrupt and, oh, yeah. you know, that, you know, that was before they could, you know, like <clears throat> one of the, 
you know, for, for all the complaints that Chrysler has uh, gotten, you know, many of them legitimate, you know, since being taken over by Fiat, uh, you know, you can't, you can't fault uh, Fiat for, you know, as soon as they took over in 2009, you know, they immediately went through and revamped the interiors of every single vehicle in the lineup, you know, with better materials and, and better fit and finish. And, you know, the, the 300 and the charger were among the first to see those upgrades. Um, and, you know, it's, it continues to, to wear well, you know, even now, you know, six, seven years later. Yeah. And that was, you know, the, the, the Daimler edict was basically like these cars were done and they, the, the first generations of them were done. And, and Daimler basically said like, yep, you're taking, you know, a whole bunch more cost out of all your cars. Yeah. And at <clears> that, that point, know, it was all hard plastics and yeah, you know, bad, bad trim, you know, like the, 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 the parts, you know, you could find, it was not uncommon to find, you know, plastic parts on the dashboard, you know, where the molding lines hadn't been trimmed off yeah, properly, flash, things like yeah. that. Yeah, it was it was bad. Um, but that's I mean, when the engineering's done, there's not a whole lot of other places to, to cut from. Um, and yeah, I, I remember when they reintroduced these cars with, you know, they're sort of second generation and they've since been updated again since then. Uh you know, the interiors were a huge step and it makes it just a, a much nicer car. And Chrysler overall, across all their cars, they do, you know, materials that feel good and look good and they seem to wear well, uh, you know, versus like even if you were to compare this to, uh, you know, like a Ford Taurus, which is in the same class. There's areas of the Taurus interior that just feel chintzy compared to what's in the uh, the the uh, Charger. Um, so that it's, I've heard criticism of it too, you know, there's a giant dash top and it's all one piece and, you know, some people feel like it looks like it's kind of like Rubbermaid and I'm like, oh, okay, but it's low gloss and it's squishy. And mm -hmm. those are the things that us dash fondlers like. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, speaking of updates though, uh, the Mustang's out new Mustang, kind of new Mustang. Yeah. This, this one, um, kind of it caused some controversy last week uh during the Detroit show and I couldn't talk about it on the last episode uh, <clears throat> excuse me because it was all still under embargo but um during during the auto show last week uh, or actually on Friday afternoon late Friday afternoon um before uh before the auto show media previews uh Ford sent out an invitation to media for an embargoed press briefing um right during the middle of the auto show media previews, which um, <clears throat> got a few people rather angry. Well, uh, wasn't that kind of what we were talking about though? How uh, automakers are now holding their own events because they want to control the story. Right. And that, and that's, you know, that's what was driving this. Um, you know, but what happened was when they, when they originally sent out the invitations, they, <clears throat> they sent out the invitations to a few people earlier on Friday and the uh, the briefing was originally scheduled for 1230 on Monday afternoon. Uh, Monday was the first day of the auto show media previews. And, um, you know, there were still uh, press conferences going on for other automakers like Toyota and Honda and Volvo. Um, and Ford was inviting people to be shuttled away from Kobo Center in Detroit 
over to Dearborn to their product development center to see a new vehicle that wasn't going to be unveiled uh, during the auto show media previews. So how far <laughs> is that and how long does it take to get there? And back? It's, it's about a 20 minute ride each way. Plus um, whatever the event is, is a couple hours. So that's like yeah, it, was, it was about an hour, hour and a half. Um, and after getting a bunch of complaints from people and uh, getting a rather nasty call from uh, the organizer of the auto show, they rescheduled it first. Uh, they planned to do two sessions, one later in the day on Monday and a second one on Tuesday, eventually canceled the, the Monday afternoon session and just did a, a Tuesday briefing uh, where they took us to Dearborn, <coughs> excuse me, to show us uh, the 2018 Mustang. Uh, which is, you know, a mid-cycle refresh. You know, this was all a lot of a lot of hullabaloo and consternation, you know, for, you know, what is basically just a, you know, a mild mid-cycle update on a car. Say, yeah, it's like the mid-cycliest of mid-cycle re- refreshes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, nothing nothing too dramatic about the, the changes to the car. Um, you know, it's not like they were doing a complete redesign, re- introducing an all-new Mustang. You know, they... It's got a new face, um, new tail lights, uh, some upgrades to the interior, uh, and some powertrain upgrades. You know, and typical new colors things. and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, the typical stuff that a manufacturer will do to any car, you know, two, three, four years into its life cycle, product cycle, you know, uh, to keep it fresh, you know, before a complete redesign. Um, so, you know, it it made a lot of people angry. And then instead of showing it during the media previews publicly. They unveiled it today, you know, in a multi-city, you know, global reveal, including showing it off on the show stand at the auto show during the public days, which was really bizarre. Wait, but, so they had know, this the, car. It was under embargo, but it was on the show stand. Uh, well, it wasn't on the show stand until today. So the oh, okay. public yeah. days for the auto show started this past Saturday. It's as we record this, it's now Tuesday night, um, January uh, 18th, I guess. Um the the show opened to the public uh, three days ago, uh, and this morning they revealed you know they revealed it publicly on the show stand, uh, which is you know something that nobody or nobody that I can recall has ever done before. Um, but they did it because it's a week after the media previews, and nobody else was announcing any news this week, so they had the complete news cycle to themselves, which is what they were aiming for. Uh, so it's all very strange, but as far as the car itself, uh, you know, one of the big complaints about the, the car when they launched it in 2015, I mean, for the most part, you know, the 2015 car was very well received, but there, you know, there were some complaints about the, des- about the design, especially around the front of the car. Um, you know, some people thought it was a little bit too soft, not aggressive looking enough, um, maybe a little bit too much fusion in the design. Um, and so they went back and, you know, as part of the update, they, um, reshaped the, the front of the car, the front edge of the hood comes down a little bit lower. It's about an inch lower now for the grill. It looks like the, the grill is leaning forward more in that classic Mustang shark nose, uh, profile, uh, you know, and then, you know, reshape the, the lights and everything. So it does look more aggressive, uh, than before. Is it enough, you know, to satisfy the the people who complained about the 2015 car? And eh, I don't know. We'll see. I, I uh, mean, the- well, yeah. Overall, it's kind of a light update, especially with the the looks. You know, it looks like the nose. It's kind of like if you were to go from the 
the sixties cars to the, the early seventies ones where they had that stretched out nose. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like the nose got a little longer and the, I, it's funny. Cause I actually feel like this one looks, it's not, it's actually not any longer. It's, it's you know, it's, a, it's, a trick. it's the same length. Yeah. It's a, it's a visual trick, you know, because, because the way it curve, it curves down more steeply now. I see. So the front end, you know, is down a little bit. It's, it's about 20 millimeters lower uh, at the front edge of the grill, the leading edge of the, or the leading edge of the hood is about 20 millimeters lower than before. Uh, so it, it's, you know, it's an illusion. <clears throat> so it's lower, but it's not any longer than before. They're very clever. Um. Yeah. And the grill <laughs> is wider. Uh, so it's not as tall, but it's, it's, it's wider. So it stretches around towards the sides a little bit more. So when you look at it from the side, it creates the visual impression that it's leaning forward more than before. Yeah. Um, even though if you actually look, you know, if you go to the, the center line of the, the hood, yeah, you know, and drops it drops straight down from that. It's still a vertical drop from there down to the bumper, just as it was before. But it, it visually it it looks um, more aggressive. And you know, it's interesting seeing it uh, after we talked about it a bit last week. Once we were done with the podcast, you know, with our normal chatter, uh, we we talked about it amongst ourselves, and then to see it in pictures instead of picturing it in my my mind's eye. Uh, you know, it's not bad, but I feel like it actually looks more fusion like now than it did when it came out. Um, but that, you know, it's such a. It's such a subjective thing, you know? Yeah. Um, Design always is. Yeah. yeah. People will see what they want in the styling, you know, and yeah, it's 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 a good look car. It's it's a aggressive looking, um, you know, overall, the the. The the mechanics are generally very lightly breathed on. Although you did talk with uh, Tom Barnes, who was um, was he the lead engineer on it? What was his what's his role? Tom, Tom is the vehicle engineering manager for Mustang and has been for probably about a dozen years now. Back to the S one ninety seven. So actually, I think I think he he's been in this role since about two thousand three. Um, so. Uh, what his what he does is he leads all of the the actual vehicle development so that the chief engineer on the project oversee you know he he's ultimately got oversight of all the um, development of the vehicle but also oversight of manufacturing and a lot of other stuff uh, related to building a new product um, Tom's role uh, it, and and the current the Chief engineer when the, the 2015 Mustang was developed was Dave Parasek, who now runs Ford Performance. And Carl Widman is now the new chief engineer on Mustang. Tom is more directly involved with the, the team doing the, the vehicle development, tuning suspension, um, calibrating powertrains, and, and all the, you know, dire- more directly focused on the car itself, developing the car and how it feels and sounds. Um, so that's, that's Tom's role. <clears throat> and, um, I had a chance to to chat with Tom a little bit uh, and we can we can drop that uh, recording in here if you want. Yeah, because you guys talked about uh, a few aspects of it, but the the retuned suspension um, and uh, some of the, the multi-mode exhaust uh, were two of the sort of highlights that he, he covered. Uh, there's a bit of background noise, but I think, you know, we'll, we'll do some audio trickery and you'll be able to understand it and, uh, you know, get the general gist. Uh, you know, it's always nice to hear directly from the horse's mouth, sort of what, what they worked on and what their aims were with even the refresh model. 
And, you know, in, t- in terms of incorporating the, you know, some of the, the pieces of the previous performance pack into the standard yeah. setup, what kind of impact did that have on ride quality? Yeah, so I was gonna I was gonna mention that just, to, but I figured someone would ask me if they care. So if you if you look at it and you say if if this is if performance better and ride better, okay, mm-hmm. I mean you could argue, oh, this is where everyone should be. So what we did is we we actually moved the performance. We went and we wanted to make everything a little more sporty in terms of handling. A little bit tight, a little more precise. Yeah, precise. Just yeah. a little more. And since we did, essentially since we got the monotubes on all the lower level, that then increased our ability on our shock tuning to keep the comfort. So we actually, in, in, internally, we have a graph, like I'm saying, we, we literally, we we went up and we got every we got better ride quality okay. and better comfort. They kind of kind of shifted it to the to the yeah. right on that. It was on that like curve. moving the frontier yeah. out, okay. and, and that's what we did. so it let us move the frontier out. And then as far as performance pack goes, um, and, and I mean I, the performance pack you could argue didn't get as much ride improvement as the base cars did, but um, these like on this car. <laughs> These tires have a innate, very good ride comfort. And so we actually got better ride comfort and better performance. And then if you look at the, the Magna Ride, obviously, you can kind of write sure. your ticket. Yeah, I mean, and, that, um, that's, the be- that's the beauty of that is. continuously variable it capability is. you have in there. I mean, every you know every vehicle from every OEM that uses that technology, you know, it's it's, it's like magic in terms it of is. what it can do. And I'm going to tell you, we've had a few, you know, we've had internal drives, obviously, and things like that. And people who don't get in cars and stuff will take them on steering and handling, which is, you know, very hilly and bouncy and curvy. They'll be like, holy, you know, like, holy moly. Yeah. So it, it, it's worked out. It's worked out very well. So, and I know that's kind of just a we've sort of inherited that, but it's it's also tuned for this car and it, it works very well. So it's it's pretty it's pretty good. I assume no uh, no notable change in mass. No, yeah. no. I mean, just your basic your basic structure is the same. Yeah, the yeah, basic so. structure, basic size, everything. I mean, there's certain things that may weigh a little more, a little less, like the ten. I don't even know how much. It weighs a little more than the 10-speed the, the automatic. It weighs a little more than the 6-speed automatic. Um, but there's there's other things that have dropped a, you know, a pound or something like that. Yeah. So, um, the manual trans on the V8, um, Carl kind of mentioned that, but just so you know, when we upgraded on the torque, we had to upgrade the drive. Yeah, you went with the dual, the, dual, yes, the dual plate clutch. Yeah, and we had to like do the half shafts, and we, we did some other things, but we also had to do the transmission. So now the V8 has a double overdrive uh, on the manual, and uh, it actually has a speaker first gear, too. So the, the case is about the same as carryover. It's a little stiffer. Uh, but then the synchros were changed, the gears were changed, uh, dog teeth were changed. And the idea we were trying to, we were trying to make the car easier to, to basically pull away and, um, and then also be able, to, be able to speed shift it just by tapping in the, the clutch. Right. So we're still, we're actually, we're still tuning on the clutch right now. Um, there's a lot to be done there. But so, in a way, the V8 manual or the V8 Auto, they it got it got quite a bit of change, obviously, the V8 Auto. And then even the, the EcoBoost one, the Auto, the manual didn't change 
peanuts. We did ch we did change some things because we because we got more torque. We actually had to upgrade part of that drivetrain, and we actually had to upgrade a little bit of the clutch. But it was more just in spring pickling and stuff like that. Is there any more power out of the EcoBoost engine or no. roughly the same? That's that's all. That's a torque story. So, okay. Uh, the dual, the active exhaust um, yeah. is very cool. I mean, and it came, it came in some ways from Shelby, but the fact that we have a completely variable valve um, gives us more tuning. It's not just a binary on off. Yeah, like it's on not some a binary. No, on a lot of cars actually. Yeah. Just when yeah, you look at it, them, yeah. um, it is not. It's variable, so um, you can creep into it. And basically, you can set it to you know low, medium, high. I mean, kind of tied tied to the, the torque output of the engine and your and the load and everything, so so, so it gives you more natural. Control. Yeah, there's 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 two things that it's doing. The one thing you set, like I said, you can set it at quiet, medium, high. You set that. And then the load management is speed and load and engine RPM. So you actually have a, a, a big map that, that and you, you literally can tune whatever you want. So it all blends in. It all blends in good. There's no point where you're like, and some people might like that, but there's no point where you're like, ah, the valve open. Right. But, you know, in, in, in some cases, like, when you're in track mode, it opens very quickly. I would say that, so it almost sure. almost is like that. But yeah. but in reality, it's blending. But when you're in normal mode, it's coming up. If you want to have it be quiet on cruising, you know, nonetheless, and, and then aggressive when you're and, aggressive. And, and I think that that gradual blending, the idea of that gradual blending, um, you know, kind of makes it feel more authentic and natural. It does. So it's it's less like it's something that's that's something that's synthetic that's been created just. Uh, just you know to you know give you this impression you know, um, not not robotic or anything but it, it's it's like you know, if you think back to you know the old days you know when car you know the, a certain type of engine would have a certain type of sound and you know it was just it was na it was natural throughout the operation you know and I, it sounds like that's kind of what you guys are trying is, to achieve this is and even and just so you know even in the non uh, variable or active one on, on the V8 that passive exhaust is awesome. Freaking, it's just like meaty. It's 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 so nice, and they they are. It's all appropriate. It's just all the reinforcement of the same stuff. That when you're accelerating hard, it's louder, and and it it when you guys get to drive it, you know, we'll see. I think I think people are going to be like, wow, that's freaking. These it is. It's, it's, that's why it's bad. It's bad. I can't wait to try it out. So, um, you know, and then and some of those features and, and I, the driver assist that Carl talked about. I think it's. I think it's really. Yeah, I mean, you know, for for daily commuting, I mean, it's just you know, it it's so handy. You know, I mean, there's times you know if you have to drive down I-94 to Dearborn, you know. I mean, you, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not utilizing what a car like Mustang is built for. Right. But just, it's nice to be able to just relax a little bit, use those features. Exactly. I, I really and then when you is. get on to, when you get out to driving out to hell, you know, that's a different, completely different story. It is. It is. And so I'm, I'm just a huge advocate for those driver assistants. So, you know, it's cool. Okay. So the, the general gist of, of the Mustang is the, you know, they've, they've tweaked it. They've, push it they've pulled it um i guess the biggest news is that the v6 is dropped 
Right. The V6 is gone from the program. Uh, you know, the V6, when they developed the, the S550, which is the current generation of the car, the V6 was a late addition to the program in order to have a, a lower cost entry level model. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And so that that engine is now gone for 2018. They have just the 2.3 liter EcoBoost and the 5 liter V8, which now has a dual injection system with both port and direct injection. Um, it's going to have more power and torque than before, but they're still not saying how much. Um, and then the automatic transmissions, uh, the the new 10 speed replaces the six speed automatic that's been in the car since 26 or since the 2015 introduction. So you, the V6 was always a confusing sort of holdover with this car. Once they refreshed it for 2015, it seems like the six didn't really fit. And it seemed like Ford's heart wasn't really in it at that point either, because they had the EcoBoost and the, the five liter and the six was kind of like, yeah, we make this thing too, but we don't know why. <laughs> um, well, like, like I said, you know, it was, it was the original plan was to only have the EcoBoost and the V8 like we have now, or like we will have for 2018. Um, <clears throat> the V6 was added to the program uh, late in the program. Uh, because they wanted to get the the base price point down, um, you know, because the, the EcoBoost is a more expensive engine to build, um, and uh, you know that that would have raised the minimum entry price for a Mustang uh, if they had just that. Uh, now, because Camaros are more expensive um, than Mustangs, you know, they I think they figured that you know they don't really need the V6 model, you know the they make enough of the EcoBoost now that I think, you know, the cost of that engine has come down a little. I don't know if the, if the, you know, if they will opt, you know, if the, the minimum base price of a must of an EcoBoost Mustang will be lower than it was for 2017. They haven't announced that yet. Um, but I would guess that there will probably be a lower content four cylinder Mustang this year um, that, uh, you know, that is close to the price of the V6. Um, and then, you know, other trim levels uh, moving up from there. Well, it just strikes me as, as weird if they wanted a lower cost you know, vehicle, you're going to save money by not building another powertrain variation. So that's weird to me. And, uh, in general, yes, that's true. Um, in the in this particular case, um, you know, I think there was enough of a cost differential between those two engines. And, you know, they were, you know, they they were already building the V6s anyway for other applications, particularly for F-150s. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, they were adding a new powertrain, a new engine line anywhere. Um, you know, I think it worked out that they could offer a cheaper Mustang with the V6. And so they did that. Yeah. And it, it's not like it was a bad car either. It pretty much performed no. about the same as the EcoBoost. <laughs> pretty close. Yeah. I mean, it's maybe a little slightly slower. Um, you know, because it had less torque than the EcoBoost. It had more, um, about the same power, as, about sli slightly less power and slightly less torque than the EcoBoost. Um, but, you know, it, it was it was definitely a good you know value option. I mean, you know, it still had, you know, almost 300 horsepower with that V6. Um, so, you know, it was still still a good performer. Uh, but, you know, now they they've decided to discontinue that one. <clears throat> I think another another one of the reasons why they wanted to why they decided to drop that as well is for uh, fuel economy reasons, you know, so the EcoBoost got a couple of miles per gallon less or the V6 got a couple of miles per gallon less than the EcoBoost. Um, and so, you know, they need to keep bumping up their, 
their average fuel economy um, and having that engine in the lineup, you know, wasn't helping. And you do you still have your S197? Uh, no, I sold that about a year ago. Yeah, because you had the V6, right? I mean, that's yeah, uh, but that was the that was the old. Oh, yeah. Four yeah. liter. The you know, that that was the the old Cologne V6 um, and its final iteration, which was uh, had single overhead cam um, and four liters of displacement. Uh, and that was considerably less powerful than the three seven that they had in the Mustangs uh, over the last seven or eight years. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, again, the V6 Mustang, not a bad thing. Uh, no, <laughs> you were getting like 30 something miles to the gallon on the highway with that, too. I remember close. Uh, yeah, about 20, 28. Yeah. So I, I don't think that the EcoBoost is going to return that kind of fuel economy, even though it, it like rates out, I guess, was sort of the point I was I was going at. Like on the EPA yeah, test, real, it might, but in practice, yeah, it probably won't. Real, real world, probably not most for most most of the time. Although, you know, on the highway, uh, cruising on the highway, especially, you know, if you got an automatic now with the 10 speed. Um, you could probably get closer to, you know, that 34 miles per gallon that they had it rated at. Um, but, uh, you know, and the way most people drive Mustangs, you're probably not going to get uh, that close to that mileage. Yeah. 34 miles to the gallon in that car seems ludicrous to me, but I, well, if you drive it gently, it's, it's not impossible. I guess I, I guess, uh, who drives a Mustang gently? Oh well, yeah, that's the point. Uh-huh. You know, pe- people, people running the, um, doing the the testing for the uh, fuel economy, uh, driving the fuel economy cycle. Yeah, and that's that's where you drive it gently. That, that's true. Um, you know, overall too, like it, we didn't we didn't really talk too much about the interior. It seems like they've got some new uh, gim crackery in there with the uh, the new gauges and stuff like that. It, it again yeah, big. The big the big change is the availability of a 12 inch digital instrument cluster. Uh, so, you know, it's reconfigurable. Uh, so, you know, if you're using the selectable drive modes and especially in the GT, um, you know, if you put it in track mode, you know, it reconfigures it to, you know, focus on, you know, what gear you're in and, and show you, you know, big uh, rev counter um, and minimizes the, uh, the speedometer, things like that. So it uses a number of different layouts that you can use. It's kind of like like an Audi esque feature, you know. They were some mm-hmm. of the first ones to do that. And there's a couple of cars now that have that. I think uh, the- there's there's actually a, a lot of cars now that have have gone to those uh, digital clusters. Um, you know, as the as the cost of the LCDs has come down, uh, you know, it's it's actually easier to do that. You know, because you don't there's a lot fewer things that you have to um, engineer to get that to work. Um, you know, as opposed to a mechanical cluster. I just um, don't like it because they're not dim enough. They're they like <laughs> they don't get dark enough. As you know, some screens do, but um, a lot of cars too. Like they have the nav screens, and you, if you shut the screen off to reduce light pollution, they still it, the backlight stays on, and it's just too bright. It messes. Uh, it's my constant old. You need, you need you need to get uh, a mid nineties Saab nine three. You know, with the, the, the night, night mode that. Yeah, the night panel it turns off all the lights, you yeah. know, except for what I think just the the speedometer yeah, intact. Yeah, but or oh, just the speedometer. The yeah, mid nineties Saab. By this point, none of the dash bulbs work anyway, so you don't even need the night panel. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else works either. Saab is a uh, you know it's an acronym. Swedish Auto Always Broken. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I. 
they made a whole lot of to do about the Mustang and it, 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 it's sort of like, yeah, all right. I mean, they restyled it a little bit and they fiddled with it. Cool. Still could've, Mustang. Could've just, it could have just been a press release that they put out. Yeah, but that's all right. They they made news. So that's right. I think they achieved their goal. And that, and that's what the communications team gets paid for. Yeah. Um, so right. share a voice. <laughs> let's um, let's move on. Let's uh, we'll we'll jump to let's see with the techie stuff though, and we, we can finish up with our our more fun story. But um, we were talking before this, and you had mentioned that uh, Mazda is going to finally launch HCCI engines in the U.S. market uh, around 2018. So uh, next year, that would make them the first automaker to put them into production. Yeah, um, uh, being reported out of uh, Japan and the Nikkei, uh, new service, uh, new next generation Skyactiv engines uh, going to HCCI, which uh, for those not familiar with the term is homogeneous charge compression ignition. Uh, and if compression ignition sounds familiar, that's because it's uh, that's what happens in a diesel, um, eliminating the spark plugs, uh, except this one, instead of running on diesel, uh, runs on uh, gasoline so doing compression ignition with gasoline it's much tougher uh, to do that right isn't it like yeah than it is to do with diesel yeah the i mean the, you know the the nature of the way that gasoline burns compared to diesel um it's it's much more complicated to control it uh so doing an hcci engine you know uh, traditionally uh, you know, there's been a number of automakers that have been working on hcci technology for a long time uh particularly um, GM, uh, Daimler and Honda. Uh, I mean, I, the first, the first HCCI prototype I drove was back in 2007, uh, which was a, a GM, um, uh, vehicle, Saturn Aura with a prototype engine in it. And, you know, all the, all the HCCI engines up until this point, uh, have required, you know, have actually still retained a spark plug because they don't operate in HCCI mode all the time. They, they switch back and forth. Uh, between HCCI and regular spark ignition cycles, uh, which you know makes things more complex and and more um, more expensive uh, because it you know has to has to switch modes you know seamlessly. And the last the last uh, GM engines I drove this way um, actually were pretty seamless, uh, but you know it's 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 a pretty complex thing to control and. A, Apparently, it looks like uh, Mazda might have might have figured out how to do it. Um, I mean, you know, Mazda is no stranger to doing doing things a little bit differently. I mean, you know, they stuck with the the Wankel rotaries for decades after everybody else gave up on them. Well, because they were so neat. They're you know, yeah, they're a terrible, terrible engine. <laughs> <laughs> But they're they're neat. Oh, they were amazing engines. They were awesome just because they burned a little extra oil. I mean, you know, getting the kind of power out of a out of a rotary that you could from such a tiny engine well, so was phenomenal. Yes and no. So not to completely derail here, the Wankels, um, the the size is sort of a red herring because you essentially have to multiply it by three because uh, it's a three sided rotor, and they they basically got it rated to be. The size of one of those, one of the sections of the rotor per revolution or something. There, there's some yeah. trickery they did because of taxes and, um, and that wasn't. But, I mean, even even if you disregard that, I mean, just the physical size. They're, they are of that small. engine. Yeah, 
you know, with the amount of power you, you're getting out of this tiny little engine, you know, and yes, it, you got, you know, three, com three combustion cycles for every, every engine rotation, right. Or and every, every crank rotation. But that's, um, that's per rotor too, right? So right, you got in a two rotor. Essentially, so the two rotor, two rotor would be a like a six. <laughs> right, it was like a six cylinder engine. Right, and uh, it drank like a six cylinder. Engine. <laughs> yeah, but it also made power like a six cylinder, it, but it, with a lot less it, mass and size. It did. It was. It was. It's very light, and they spin to like nine thousand RPM with no worries, and they're super neat. And they were a hoot to drive. Oh yeah, you know, as long as as long as they you know as long as the apex seals held up. I listen. I love me some rotaries. <laughs> um. I just want it to be clear that uh, they they have their challenges just as HCCI does. And one of the challenges, well, actually, no, I was going to say one of the, the challenges is, is the same, but it's not really. Uh, the rotaries have a problem with unburned hydrocarbons and HCCI has the problem with uh, they actually they burn fine. But at part throttle, uh, cylinder temperature and pressure goes way up um, and that makes a lot of knocks. Right. And uh, hopefully Mazda has figured out how to deal with that. Uh, I mean, I think it's going to be less of a problem, you know, with an HCCI engine uh, than it is with a diesel, uh, just because of the nature of, of gasoline and the way gasoline burns. But it's it's still an issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, and you know, as emissions standards get tougher, you know, it's tougher for everybody. But you know, the the main thing driving this is fuel efficiency. And the, you know, the HCCI engine, you know, is capable of getting 25 to 30% better fuel efficiency than a comparable spark ignition gasoline engine. So it's That's, basically so that, diesel, that of, diesel fuel efficiency. Yeah, but in that amount of efficiency, like that, that percentage, one of the things is you, you, you tune your BS detector is that a percentage that large when it's being claimed and, and touted is something to be very skeptical of because that's, that's really hard at this point to make a gasoline engine 30% more fuel efficient. Um, so, yeah. yeah well, one, of, one of the keys, you know, is a much higher compression ratio, you know, and higher compression ratios are, you know, inherently tend to be, uh, more efficient, you know, and when you when you combine it with, you know, a bunch of other te other technologies like variable valve timing and lift and and, you know, all the other things that they do on modern engines, you know, it's it's certainly in the ballpark of being able to achieve that. That's impressive. I mean, because uh, it's not like it's it's not like there's low hanging fruit to to go after. You know, we've been increasing the efficiency of these things for a long time now. So. Uh, there's right. no easy, easy fixes. Um, and, you know, HCCI is def definitely doesn't qualify as an easy fix. I mean, it's like I said, there's a reason why it's taken so long to come to market, because it's you know, there's a there's a lot of complex engineering problems to solve with it. But if you can make it work, you know, it can do a lot of great things. So are we going to see these in the States? um who knows maybe <laughs> what, what's your i mean i guess if you had to uh, sort of uh, speculate um i would guess that probably probably in the first year or so we probably won't um i think they'll probably want to put them on the road in japan and maybe some other markets first um like they typically do with tech new technologies like this and then you know once once they've seen that you know that it uh that it can actually hold up then you know probably introduce them into the u.s market 
that'll be an interesting thing. I mean, Mazda needs some kind of, like you say, they're unique and they still, I, I feel like they need that kind of uh, differentiator to keep them uh, separate. And, and at a certain point, I expect Mazda to get snapped up into a larger uh, automaker. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the company, you know, they want to stay independent. You know, they like being independent now, you know, especially, you know, since they, since they, uh, since Ford divested their interest in the company, um, you know, they like being able to go their own way and do things a little bit differently. You know, you, we are going to see, you know, some electrification from Mazda in the next few years. We're going to see hybrids and, and some battery electric vehicles from Mazda. Uh, in addition to, you know, internal combustion technologies like HCCI. And, you know, they're they're actively trying to move the brand up market a little bit, you know, and see be seen as more, you know, not, you know, not quite, you know, Lexus style, but definitely a little bit more premium than, you know, the mainstream brands like like Toyota or Honda or or Hyundai or or GM, you know, Chevrolet. Um, you know, and they're, you know, they're doing that with you know, with their designs and with their interiors, you know, their, their interiors, you know, relative to their, their competitive set, you know, definitely tend to be of a higher caliber. Uh, you know, so they're, they're trying to be seen as, as trying to create the perception of being a more of a premium brand, um, you know, so that they can, they can get a, get a price point that makes sense, um, you know, for their more limited volumes compared to the bigger players. Yeah. Um, it just makes me think of, uh, back in the day when, when Acura and Lexus were sort of new on the scene and, um, you know, Nissan had introduced infinity and Mazda was one of the, the last and they were toying with, uh, I think it was Amadi. Amadi. Right. And that was the, yeah. uh, that became the last of the nine two nines was the Amadi. Like it was, yep. it was, Oh no, the millennia, the millennia was supposed to be the, the, um, uh, right. Amadi was the, the new brand they were doing and the, the car, the car they were designing for that brand became the uh, millennia. Right. Um, yeah, they, they eventually decided that, that, that strat, you know, that they couldn't, they weren't big enough to launch another brand. Yeah. And so they abandoned that plan, but you know, they already had the car ready to go. So they went ahead and launched it. That was such a neat um, car. Yeah. Um, it was the, uh, the first Miller cycle engine. Yeah. Uh, before we completely, completely reminisce, um, do you think that, uh, <laughs> do, you, do you think that this is a move to like get the powertrain in place and fine tuned and out there in the field before they start to, um, really go at hybrids as well because they're saying that uh they're gonna start with um you know plug-in hybrid by like 2020 2021 or something um so having this engine which is a high efficiency engine paired with um a hybrid might give them even better fuel economy than than other competitor uh yeah systems. Uh, i think that's that's certainly a distinct possibility um you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them pair the HCCI engine with uh, uh, with a hybrid. In fact, back, um, you know, back before the um, the first generation Volt launched, you know, uh, back in 2007 or 2008 uh, at the time, you know, b before they had nailed down what the configuration of the production Volt was going to be. I actually talked to some folks at GM, uh, including Larry Burns, who was then their head of R&D. 
you know, about what other types of engine configurations would be suited, would be well suited to being um, a range extender for a car like the Volt. Because uh, I don't know if you remember the, the original Volt concept that debuted 10 years ago, um, the spec sheet at least uh, listed a one liter three cylinder turbo, uh, which ultimately, you know, they, uh, you know, GM was obviously in some financial straits at the time and didn't have the resources available to develop that all new engine. And they ended up using an older 1.4 liter naturally aspirated uh, four cylinder. Uh, but I, I talked to, uh, to Larry Burns and, and some others at GM, you know, about whether an HCCI engine would make a good alternative because, you know, one of the things with HCCI engines, at least at the time was, you know, they, they operated really well, you know, in more of a steady state, uh, you know, they, were, they, they had their best efficiency in, in kind of a steady state operating condition, which was exactly the sort of duty cycle you would have with uh, a range extended uh, EV like the Volt. And he said he agreed that, yeah, that would be that would be an excellent option for that sort of application. Uh, so, you know, looking at, you know, doing a plug in hybrid now for Mazda, having an HCCI engine would probably actually be a really good combination with either a regular hybrid or a plug in hybrid. So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe maybe we have just deciphered their strategy. I guess we'll have to wait and see. But um, yeah, yeah. And I don't I don't know if you can do Atkinson cycle with HCCI. That seems I don't know. They'll figure it out. Yeah, you know, to, um, you're not you're not really going to do. I don't think you can really do an Atkinson with HCCI because um, with with Atkinson you're actually going to um, lower compression ratio. Uh, and HCCI requires a high compression ratio because um, you need to compress the air in order to get it hot enough to ignite the fuel without without a spark. Oh, that's true. Versus Atkinson, so Atkinson, they're using Atkinson because it reduces peak power, but it, you get more work out of the fuel because it exp you, right. it waits longer basically, so you get more expansion before yep. before blowdown. Exactly. So you get a shorter shorter compression stroke and. Uh, Effectively, a shorter compression stroke and a longer power stroke. Yeah, and uh, super geeky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, we had some questions. Oh no! Before we get to questions, um, I I think this is great. It, it basically reminds me of just the general overall Tesla owners I've met, um, <laughs> where they they seem to be uh, space shots who have bought an expensive thing that's a status car. And then they do stupid things. Well, not necessarily a stupid thing, but, you know, it's just a, a general reminder. And this applies not only to Tesla, but uh, to any car that has a has a telematic system and has an app that you can use to unlock the car and start the engine. You know, and that's actually a lot of cars today, uh, you know, uh, including the, including Tesla's. Uh, GM was actually the first to launch this back in 2010 with the OnStar Remote Link app uh, to have this kind of capability. Uh, and most most manufacturers offer something like this now. Um, so what happened was uh, a Tesla driver, um, where let's see where was he uh, in uh, Red Rock Canyon near Las Vegas? Um, he decided you know to leave the key fob uh, at home and went for a drive. 
um, and figured, you know, he's got his got his smartphone on him. You know, that's all he needs. He doesn't need the key fob. Why would you leave the key fob at home? Like, is it that big and bulky? Is it that much of a thing? Was he, you know, did he not have pockets? Yeah, uh, who knows? Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, but for for whatever reason, he drove off without the key fob, and you know, drove off into the the desert to uh, check out the can check out Red Rock Canyon. And when he got out there, you know, shut off the car and got out and walked around. And um, and then when he went to leave, um, he realized that uh, the car couldn't be started because he had no cell phone signal. Uh, so, you know, all of these smartphone based systems uh, that are out there today that um, can unlock and start your car, um, you know, requires having an actual cell signal to both the phone and the car uh, in order for them to work. Um, you know, there are some systems coming out, you know, in the next uh, year or two that uh, that don't necessarily require that cellular connection. You know, it'll be able to work just with having a, a authentication from the phone um, and using Bluetooth low energy. But uh, those aren't available yet. So um, just a, a warning, you know, if you're if you do have uh, a car that has this capability, take your key with you. Don't leave it at home when you go out. <laughs> Uh, you know, like I just, there's such a story in there. Like you can just come up with like this, this beautiful shiny car or this once shiny car out in the Canyon. And there's this pile of, of bleached bones. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a novel there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's not that I, I have actually taken off before and left the fob, um, elsewhere. Well, I've, you know, I've given, uh, you know, I've, I've handed over, you know, cars to valets and stuff, you know, and forgotten the fob in my pocket, um, you know, and then, you know, when they, uh, when I go to pick up the car they they weren't able to bring the car back because I still had the key with me. So, yeah. And then there's, uh, you know, a lot of cars now, most cars won't let you lock the fob inside the car, except for that fluke when you actually do. And it's, yeah. it's usually like when the car is running and everything else is in it, like all of your house keys and everything, and it's snowing. And you, right. like for whatever reason, you bump the lock button, you shut the door, and the moment it clicks, you have that sinking feeling and you go, I just locked myself out of the car <laughs> and the house and the yep. car is running. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they do that by using multiple antennas around the car. You know, so that, you know, there's a there's one antenna that's mounted right in the center of the car somewhere, you know, and they're, you know, they're fairly short range transmitters. So you've got to be very close to it. So if the key is sitting, sitting in the right spot, you know, then it won't lock the car. But if it's just slightly out of range, yeah. it might still allow it to lock even while the key's in the car. Um, so, you know, m- make sure you keep the key in your pocket or your purse or, you know, whatever you use. And that is your uh, wheel bearings PSA. Um, yeah. So we we did have some questions though. I was rare to get to them. Um, we got a couple of email questions, or at least one email question and a Facebook yeah. question. Yeah. So uh, I'll I'll read the question here for you, and I'll let you uh, respond first. I'll take notes. Uh, 
Another one from James. Uh, so it's a three-parter here. Okay. Um, see, first part, uh, insider view of automotive journalism. You mentioned a cozy relationship between manufacturers and journalists. What if a journalist has uncomplimentary things to say about a certain model? Uh, in your experience, is it safe to publish these views, or do you have to tone down your opinion? Uh, have you ever been known? Have, have have you ever have you ever known there to be consequences to a journalist stating a negative opinion about the car? Uh, well, let me respond to that. Uh, rewind back to the beginning of this podcast and our discussion of the Toyota Corolla. Uh, so, generally, no. I mean, as long as as long as your criticisms are fair and legitimate, right? You know, then. You know, it's there's there's not going to be a problem. So, you know, I mean, right. Go ahead. I was just don't be a jerk, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like um, there are some famous cases of criticism not being uh, met with uh, a happy response. You know, most famously, there was the decision, um, the car and driver decision by David E. Davis Jr. to publish the I think it was like the Opal Cadet Wagon this is back now about 45 years, but the pictures were done in a junkyard and stuff. And the car was just generally not reviewed in a favorable light. And GM pulled its advertising, I believe from car and driver. Um, it was a different time. Uh, that was definitely a, a bolder move. Then uh, the way it was sort of, I've always operated in the way it was sort of initially introduced to me was like, look, you can criticize the cars uh, if it's, you know, if there's an engineering flaw or just a design thing that you don't like or, you know, again, like there's subjectiveness that comes into it. But you're if you're going to make a statement, you want to back it up, too, because if you get called on it, you, you want to have something to back it up other than just like an opinion, unless it's something completely subjective. And then that that's also fair. But. Yeah, I mean, if you don't like the way a car looks, I mean, you know, as they say, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And uh, I mean, to me, you know, the the Nissan Juke, you know, burns my eyeballs every time I see one. <laughs> but yeah, that's 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 me. Yeah, I say. But but on the on the flip side, though, you couldn't say something like, uh, you know, it's it's just it, the Juke's engine is the worst engine ever. Almost no. I mean, the Juke is actually a lot of fun to drive. Right. It's I just think it looks ridiculous. Right. Um, unless, unless it actually like you could point to data that says like, you know, it's completely unreliable or, or bad or terrible, you know, there, there's, if you're going to make those kind of statements, yeah, you, you can find the information to back it up. Otherwise you're going by gut feel and that's okay, depending on, on what it is. But, um, you know, automakers have been at this a long time. Their PR people have been at it a while and they deal with good and bad reactions and, um, and, you know, they, they know which products they build are better and which ones are not as good. Yeah. And, you know, they, they know that there are some products that are going to get less than favorable reviews and they just, they, they deal with it. Yeah. I have never tempered, um, my, uh, my opinions and, and reviews to, uh, curry favor with an automaker. Um, I have been called out by my editors about making statements that I couldn't back up or that the the publication you know was like you need to stand by this um you know can you can you explain this better can you express this in a more clear way um but it, again never to stay on the good side of an automaker just just so that we just don't look like clowns right um so all right that was the, so, that's okay, the so first part 
So the next part, video reviews. Uh, there are some very good and a lot of pretty poor automotive video reviews available on YouTube. Uh, is this approach, uh, video reviews, something you guys have considered for yourselves? Uh, and how does a business, how does this business model compared to an, compared to an audio podcast? Um, Dan, you are the professional video producer. Yeah. Um, I actually got, I got bumped to, um, associate creative director, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in between the last time we talked about the day job and now. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I think they did that to stem some attrition. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, videos are everybody thinks they're easy because the tools are really inexpensive, but the tools being inexpensive does not automatically make you good at video. And everybody chases what they hold up as the, the sort of shining light of the paradigm, which is just Top Gear. And I, I will tell you, I am so bored and uninterested in Top Gear and the Grand Tour and whatever those clowns are doing now. I it is nothing nothing would be further from what i'm doing uh but video is a specific format to write for it's something you really have to plan out um audio is one thing like we're i'm sitting in my dining room right now with a microphone and a laptop uh this would make a really boring video we'd have to go out somewhere we'd have to shoot stand-ups we'd have to understand how it's all going to be pieced together we would shoot it all out of sequence we'd get b-roll uh we'd have to have a, a story and a shot list and a crew uh or if you're doing you know one dude with the camera you're gonna have to have a camera that you set up somewhere and drive by a bunch of different ways and that's less interesting I, i've tried all those different iterations um and if you're gonna if you're gonna sort of rob from peter to pay paul you know you could shoot a video review on your phone but you've got to make it really tight and really interesting. I like the dude in a car driving around rambling. Um, you know, some people are really good at that. Uh, you know, like most people are not right. Like I'm no Matt Farah. I can't do that. Um, I, my stream of consciousness, sometimes I'll grab my audio recorder on my phone and just, just babble into it as I commute so that I can capture the thoughts that I'm having, but I'm never that coherent to just be able to, to riff like that. So, uh, videos it, it takes a lot of effort um at least to do it the way that you know has you, you've got to bring something new to the, the plate too like if you're going to do video do something that hasn't been done like top gear is, is operating at such a high level in terms of production value and uh the cost that those those things uh you know that they put into those productions like you got to come up with some other way uh, of doing it and um one of the problems i see with a lot of the video is you get people who just don't really they don't really know about the cars. Um, so they're writing the content for a much broader audience. And, and I think that that sort of cheats it too. Um, but there's a lot of really good video too, you know, that's entertaining. Um, a lot of people like roadkill and that kind of stuff too. So there, there's stuff out there. Uh, I've and, definitely given thought to it. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've discussed it, you know, and, but, you know, as you said, you know, it takes a lot more effort to do video well. You know, it, let's put it this way. It'll take a lot more time to do a really good two minute video oh, yeah. than it takes us to record a 90 minute podcast. Yeah. Well, and, and so to like to do it right too, like if you're, if you're doing video, you're not just, it's not as easy as going out on, think about this, right? You are a for-profit entity. And uh, if you're doing video, you're spending a bit. So you're going to advertise against that. So you, you're, you're selling advertising time on this platform that you have developed. Uh, so people are giving you money. Um, 
you're developing a thing, you're going out on public roads. Okay, well, so if you're going to go out on public roads and shoot a video, you're going to be disruptive to the general public. So to do it correctly, you've got to ensure your shoot. You've got to get um, permits, the right permits. Uh, you've got to have a crew. Uh, the, the permits also mean like if you're going to be shooting on the roads, you're probably going to want to get a police detail to actually close the road for you so you can do what you need to do. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like <laughs> it, it gets expensive to do right. It's, it's not that it's hard, you know, there's, there's just, there's a lot of logistics into it that you just never consider and you never, uh, you never really see. And, um, to do it like a gorilla way, first of all, you're, you're not necessarily doing anybody a, a favor and you, you could be like, if you, if you wanted that shot of the car rounding the corner and like, you know, really digging in handling wise and stuff, you're going to be, possibly breaking the law and putting somebody you know somebody else in danger if you make a wrong move or you just you come upon something where the road isn't closed and stuff so so there's that or you know you need a studio space or you need uh some other big parking lot or location you know it, it gets and then the cars the automakers um are you doing something that's not allowed in the the um the agreement like i we can't take the cars racing i i live near a drag strip i they would be very upset with me if I were to take a brand new Mustang up and run it uh, at New England Dragway. I mean, I could definitely do it, but they're not going to be happy when they find out. Because that's perfect. Yeah, you know, the, going, going back to part one of this uh, this question, you know, that's the sort of thing that, uh, you know, they don't want you doing. You know, that that's where they get pissed off and they'll start pulling cars from you if you do those sorts of things. Yeah. You know, it would know, be different. Part, part the, the oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, like as you said, you know, when when they loan us a car, you know, we sign a loan agreement, you know, which, you know, we say, you know, we're going to take good care of the car. You know, if there's an if accidents happen, if an accident happens, you know, we're going to report it and so on. You know, but we're not going to take it to the track, things like that. You know, and, you know, we're going to obey the obey the traffic laws. So, you know, all all those things are, are things that, you know, you have to consider if you're going to do video. And if you if you want to take it to the track, you they'll let you do it. But you got to set that up in advance. Like you can't just be like, hey, thanks for the Mustang. Here's what I did with it. It ran 14s. <laughs> like, yeah. no. Uh, first of all, that's probably kind of slow for the Mustang now. But also, um, the, it's not insured for the track. If you break it while you're doing that, you know, that's, that's just so much more hassle for them. Um, because I, I, like if, if I were to crash it, that's one thing that's an insurance claim for them. If I blow it up on the track, that's a different kind of thing. And they may actually just be on the hook for that, that dollar amount. And so somebody's budget has to eat that. Um, and then the car goes out of the fleet. They got to get another car. Just, it, it snowballs. Um, so if I wanted to do something like that, I would need to clear it with them. And I probably would also I would need to buy more insurance because it's it's me doing it. So you see, like it's a business relationship yeah. for that kind of thing. Um, and, and doing and, video you know, is a when, business. Yeah. I mean, when you know, when we're, you know, for us, at least, you know, unlike the the big car magazines that have a lot more resources, um, you know, when we're doing reviews, you know, we're we're trying to, you know, we're both trying to look at it from the perspective of the typical consumer that's going to buy this vehicle, you know, how, how are they going to use it? So, you know, when we talked about the Corolla earlier tonight, you know, I said, you know, this is not the car for, for me personally, right. but you know, for a lot of consumers, 
this is a this would be a great car, you know, because it's it's going to be you know it's affordable and reliable, and you know offers a decent selection of features, uh, you know, for a decent price, and you know, so we're we're looking at it from that perspective, you know, so it, it's it's all a matter of of what we're trying to get across with our reviews, right? And so I would love to do some kind of video stuff. I like you know. Uh, <laughs> those resources are gladly accepted as donations. Send them our way. We'll come up with something. Um, in the meantime, Motor Week has been doing, you know, for something like 40 years, really good job at understanding where I know they're not, they're not the most exciting show. I get it, but they do a really good job of sort of fitting a car into its segment and understanding its, its, uh, its place and ex- explaining that to people. Their funding and, model know, is the they're Maryland Public Television. So Maryland Public Television is actually more taxpayer funded than other public television stations or uh, uh, in other states. So they've had a long term budget to be able to do that. Uh, right, and you know it takes it takes a lot more crew to to do it all. Uh, you know, I mean, this is you know wheel bearings is just Dan and myself. You know, and Dan's in Boston, and I'm in you know outside of Ann Arbor. You know, so uh, (laughs) the logistics don't work out very well for us. No, we could we could certainly do it. You know, we're doing the podcast like a double ender. We could do a show like a double ender, but we'd need to get more people involved and we'd need to have tighter, you know, producing control over it. Again, not a problem, but, (laughs) you know, uh, eventually we might, but not yet. If I'm if I'm taking that kind of time like that, that. Yeah, it's not that I don't love you all, but you're going to have to send money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, do, right. do we get all and the parts that, of his uh his uh, question? one one more about engine technology uh he's owned a lot of hondas and v and bmws in his life uh because for years thought they made the best engines bmw with the inline sixes and honda's four-cylinder vtex engine technology has changed so much with turbos hybrids etc which companies do you think are the most innovative and high quality in producing great engines do honda and bmw still compare well uh honda certainly um still builds a a great engine um bmw i mean i guess they both do yeah no that i i think they both do i mean you know the most manufacturer most of the big manufacturers today build really excellent engines you know they're they tend to be very reliable um they're remarkably powerful for you know they uh, their power density that they're achieving today compared to what they were doing 15 or 20 years ago uh, is, you know, unheard of, you know, and they're, you know, for the most part, you know, running cleaner and more efficient than ever before. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, hard to pick a bad one. Um, But, you know, certainly I would, I would rank Honda and BMW still up there. Um, you know, a lot of the, the Ford engines, a lot of GM engines, you know, excellent engines. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know that. So BMW has, has long committed to that, that inline six and it, it, it is a good engine. I don't, I don't know that it's a a configuration that's, that's actually, you know, on the verge of even more of a revival because Mercedes Benz is Mercedes Benz is launching a new inline six this year in the uh, updated S class uh, replacing a V six and it's an all new engine. So, you know, don't, don't diss the inline six. No, I'm I'm not. It's just, you know, they're, they're one of a very few 
still making an inline six and their their engineering certainly tends to be uh pretty pretty aggressive about you know pushing pushing the cutting edge um you know what i see now is there's, there's a lot of turbocharging going on which makes it a little bit more more difficult to really say oh yeah that's that's a a great really flexible engine i, I you know I'm very intrigued by the the Nissan variable compression engine. Uh, yeah, that's that's going to be real interesting to watch. Um, I don't know that that's the best or the worst. I mean, Nissan certainly the VQ V6 is has proven itself um, for for a very long time. Uh, you, you know, I it depends on what you want out of an engine. Do you want that power density like you were talking about, or do you want uh, you know longevity, or do you want a combination of it? Because there's certainly the the GM V8. Uh, the push rod, the small unit. block. Yeah, I mean, come on, <laughs> that's brilliant packaging. Uh, Absolutely, and they've put so much development into that engine. That is a, a that is a fantastic engine. And the, you know, the, the Chrysler Hemi is the same kind of kind of thing. There's that's a very well engineered V8, and it's got a lot of power. It's really punchy. Um, it's starting to show its age a bit, um, but you know, that's nothing that a giant supercharger can't fix. and apparently there's going to be an even bigger one soon so yeah but we'll we'll talk about that another night yeah that'll be interesting um and we got we got one more question um from facebook uh which is uh let me just let me just bring it up here um oh stand by open the app and it reloads uh what car do you recommend the most to friends and family and why um for me yeah actually um one probably probably one of the types of cars that i recommend the most is actually minivans and uh it's the ones that are the one the ones the the suggestion that gets rejected the most frequently yeah but that's the thing like so I used to do this, you know, we would spend some time, I'd get the question and, and, you know, I'd click through my, my mental memory bank of like, okay, they want to do this, this, and this, and you got three kids and a dog and they like to go kayaking. Uh, and yeah, you usually land on something like a minivan and, you know, you get the scrunched up nose and be like, okay, well, I mean, I don't drive one, but that's the best choice. You know, <laughs> it's going to be something that's got all the stuff you want. It's huge. It's comfortable. It's easy to drive. Uh, and, you know, you're going to go drop $45,000 on some kind of pseudo SUV that's not going to do as much. So you might as well just take the money and put it into a really nice van. Um, right. Or a station wagon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot of times I'll get the question too, like, well, what would you buy? And I'm kind of like, that is, that is the wrong question to be asking me. Because I, my, our needs are different from yeah, yours. I'm going to buy journalists. We like terrible cars. We like cars with flaws. No, no we like excellent cars. Well, the cars we like are inherently excellent. Uh, they're, it's art. Okay. So <laughs> true art um, is filled with flaws because it is the flaw that makes the art beautiful. Um, and so that's, that's what we do with cars, you know, when we, cause we, a perfect car, like, like that Corolla, right? Like, a uh, even just a fusion, right? Like it's just, it's so good at just being 
there for you. It doesn't really have any bad habits. I want a car with some bad habits. That's why I like the Focus ST or the Fiesta ST because you know, you're in the middle of a corner, you let off the gas and the thing's going to rotate. Like a lot of people are not going to like that. It's going to freak them out. I'm going to be entertained as hell <laughs> by that. Yeah. You know, I you want you want you want a car with some personality and some character. Yeah, character is a nice most, word. Most for people it. most most people don't want character. Yeah, they want they want a Corolla. Right. I, I mean, my fondest memories are my shit boxes because they did stupid things. You know, like it, that's yeah. So asking a journalist what car they would buy is is probably not not the best idea. And I've I've actually found myself recommending stuff like like Camrys or just, you know, a lot around here, a lot of people are like, well, should I get the Jeep? And I'm like, I mean, I have a Jeep. If you want to wrangle, you should absolutely not buy it unless you want to spend a lot of money on it and understand that it's going to be super loud and not all that practical and not terribly comfortable, but it's cool. Like I like them a lot, but I don't know that I'd want to live with it all the time. Um, and, you know, I'll freely admit like buying the Grand Cherokee, there was a lot of factors that played into that. It was not the most practical use of that chunk of money uh i'm satisfied with it i still like it and that's that's kind of the emotional factor of it that you have to you have to work in there too so usually now when i get asked i'm like what are you what are you looking at what are you leaning toward and i can either validate that choice or give them at least an alternative to say you might want to check these things out um or you know usually we give some advice and it's an interesting conversation for 10 minutes and then i don't i don't ever they never do what we suggest. That's fine. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. I think I've murdered that and, question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I think that's about it for tonight. Uh, one one other thing we're, we want to tack on to the end of this is an interview that I did at CES with uh, Jim Zizzleman, who is the vice president of engineering for Delphi. Uh, we had a great conversation about um dynamic uh, skip fire yes dynamic skip fire thank you for the reminder it's getting late um and uh, which is an interesting new variation on uh cylinder deactivation you know which is a technology we've had around since the legendary um cadillac v864 that debuted in 1980 um, but uh, this is a, a new variation of that that's going to be coming to market in the next year or two um, and uh, we had a, Jim and I had a great conversation about that as well as getting into some stuff with autonomous vehicles and what Delphi is doing in that space uh, so that'll be uh, coming up uh, right after we finish up here uh, with our closing and uh, see you next week yeah thanks everybody for the reviews you know where to catch us we are at wheel bearings on twitter with no vowels um we are uh on facebook at uh wheel bearings um and i'm on twitter as boston underscore auto you are on twitter as sam abu asmid or abu, i can never say your name i'm sorry <laughs> abu al samad yeah. yeah uh anyway uh we will catch you guys next week thanks for listening all right bye Okay, so Jim, let's talk dynamic skip fire. Cylinder deactivation's been around for a while. When first, like the first application was in 1980, which we'll quietly forget about. Uh, but it's been around in its modern form for what, 15 years now? Easily, yeah. And so now the next phase of that is dynamic skip fire. Give me, uh, 
overview of what is dynamic skip fire and how is it going to impact engines of the future? Okay, so conventional skip fire, conventional deactivation, really is a pre-programmed set of cylinders that gets turned on or turned off. And a V8, you have four cylinders on or eight cylinders on. It's always the same four that you would turn off. In the case of dynamic skip fire, say on a V8 engine, you could turn any and all of those cylinders off at will. So in the case of a V8 engine going down the road, if you only need a few horsepower to power that car down the road, you might be only running on one or two cylinders as that car goes down the road. That's why they call it dynamic. And you might think, well, it's got to be a lot of vibration that comes from that if you're running the car on one cylinder. But the, the actual invention, the, the innovation around dynamic skip fire is what cylinder do you fire after the one you just fired, right, to keep balance on the engine? So you can fire number one now, and you're only firing one or two per engine revolution, which is the next one that would be best fired so that you keep balance on that engine? And the bottom line is you can succeed in running the engine on a very, very low number of cylinders. Uh, if you were to take a, a demonstration ride in the Tula vehicle, which has the V8 engine, you'll see you know, at 40 miles an hour and going down a flat road, even in a large vehicle like a Chevy Tahoe, for example, uh, you'll run that vehicle typically on less than two cylinders. It substantially improves fuel economy. You can get up to 18% fuel economy improvement on a V8 uh, with, uh, with a dynamic skip fire uh, in the Tula Delphi configuration. And what kind of additional hardware do you have to add to the engine to enable dynamic skip fire? Well, uh, you know, in today's deactivation systems, uh, you have, say, a bank of cylinders uh, uh, fitted with some hardware. There are deactivation lifters or, or rockers, roller finger you, followers. Like typically on, like on the GM V8. Uh, push right engine, so it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a deactivation it's lifter. Basically shutting off the, the, the oil Balance. flow to the uh, lifters, right? That's, that's, right. that's right. You shut down, you, you basically turn off the lifter, so it right. doesn't, doesn't allow for a lifting of the valve. Okay. So you just repeat that same hardware on all the cylinders. So instead of putting it just on four, put it on all eight. And, and that, along with some software that would be built into the controller, which already exists, gives you the capability to drive the system. And because you're um, constantly switching around which cylinders are firing and which ones are off, um, and, and you don't keep any of them off for extended periods of time, um, you're, you're, that, that, I assume that prevents um, you know, any potential downside, you know, downsides of not firing them, you know, the oil running out of those. That's right. And, and you're actually getting uh, at an issue that was existent, at least in early deactivation systems, where you had, you know, eight cylinders on and four, four cylinders on. You had an extended period with four cylinders on. The other four cooled down. Right. And so when you restart those, uh, you can have some transient effect, like, you know, cold combustion or maybe higher emissions. And, you know, they have since really addressed that issue. Uh, but in the case of dynamic skip fire, you're, you're exactly right. It's, it really is... I don't want to call it random, but you're in essence are firing all the cylinders at some frequency, right? But in total, firing less over time. Right. And so they are staying relatively warm, so you don't really have those transient effects. And um, let's see, what was the next question? Um, I'll have to edit this part. Dan, pay attention. Uh, my, my partner Dan Roth will be editing this to insert it in the podcast. Um, maybe, I guess are there, are, maybe four cylinder versus eight. Yeah, or, or, well, yeah. I guess um, with dynamic skip fire, um, as opposed to the, the systems we have today, 
that enables you to use it on a probably on a wider variety of engines, so you can, you know, different configurations, so even down to four-cylinder engines. That's exactly right. If you look at most deactivation systems today, they're mostly on V8 engines. You see some on six-cylinders, not too many, and you're just seeing some introduction of some also on four-cylinders, uh, Volkswagen primarily. But you just don't see a lot of that, and one of the reasons for that is noise, vibration, and harshness of the engine. On an eight-cylinder, you take it down to four, you can imagine both those engine configurations can be smooth. We'll take a six-cylinder down to three or a four-cylinder down to two. Just in your head, you can think that if that's just a fixed set of cylinders always running, it's probably going to have some noise concerns or some vibration concerns. Yeah. And especially it, on a four-cylinder. Especially on a four-cylinder. Right. And, and it really does, right? If, you, if you've driven some of those, you know, it, it can feel problematic. But in the case of dynamic skip fire, again, you're selecting which cylinders, and uh, you're looking for sort of the opposite effect in terms of vibration to cancel out what may have been caused by the last firing cylinder. And so you're much more able to quell those vibrations that might be increasing because of your lack of usage of all the cylinders. And I guess uh, you know, the other thing you can do, too, is if you, if you combine it with 48-volt electrical systems, you can potentially gain even more benefits out of it, right? That, that's true, and, and you know, interestingly, the, the you know one of the things that um, uh, is a problem on these uh, dynamic skip fire systems is that uh, you have a situation where when you're not firing uh, the cylinder, the engine wants to rock in its engine mount, right? You think about I fired a, cel a cylinder, the engine maybe takes a set on its engine mount, and then when you're waiting four or five cylinder events before you fire the next one, the engine wants to rock back, right? So you end up having some vibration that is difficult sometimes to address, even in a dynamic skip fire. With the 48 volt, you can actually address those concerns, right? So when the engine is rocking, right, you actually use an electric pulse, right? You let the motor on, on the uh, powertrain configuration actually address that vibration concern that's created by the combustion engine. And so because of that, you can actually extend the, the um, range over which you're actually operating the dynamic skip fire. So you can go to lower RPMs and still have good uh, vibration control, thereby extending the fuel economy benefit as well. Yeah, so you're using the, the little bit of electric drive to smooth out the torque holes and flatten the torque curve. Yeah, much better stated. Okay. Right? Electric drive to smooth out the torque curves. That's exactly what it's doing. Okay. And so how, how much total benefit, um, real-world benefit, do you think you can get out of uh, dynamic skip fire, both with and without 48-volt ballpark. Okay, so uh, I, I think you can, uh, in the case of a, let's say, four-cylinder, because maybe it's the important one right now. It's, it's very good on the eight, and it's very interesting on the eight-cylinder, but I think for dynamic skip fire to be really beneficial uh, in the powertrain space, it's got to be effective on Because that's where the volume, the, the big volume of the market exactly. is. Exactly. I mean, if you go to Europe and you start talking about V8s, people you know, sort of walk out of the room. There's not a lot of interest in just going away. And even in this country, even with all the big trucks and V8s, when you really look at the grand scheme of things, V8s are in the extreme minority of engines. So you got to make it work on the four-cylinder. So we, we think you can get another 5% fuel economy by combining it. So our, our numbers are roughly 10% fuel economy benefit on the four-cylinder cylinder deactivation alone, we think we can get that to 15% with 48 you combine it with the 48 volts. Okay. Great. So it's significant. You think about 15% on a four-cylinder, yeah. that's, that's a hard nut to crack. Yeah. Well, especially, you know, when, when you're when you're starting with four-cylinder engines, you know, that are already, you know, in the upper 20s, the 30s, you know, if you can get, you know, the, 
every incremental improvement beyond that gets harder and harder to do. So if you can get another 15% with that, that's that's pretty significant. That's, that's right. For the dollar, too. Yeah. 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 And then and it's a it's a it is actually actually in fact quite significant. And when you look at the value proposition, right? What's the benefit divided by the cost? Right. The cost in this case is actually quite low compared to other systems that can get you 15%. Right. right? Solar deactivation, you know, in essence, is not that expensive to implement. The cost for implementation is well known because you're essentially repeating what you've already done for years on the standard systems on all of the cylinders. And of course, the uh, you know the 48 volts uh, activity is also now becoming much better known in terms of cost there as well. Okay. And when when do you think we might start to see some of these uh, coming into production? Uh, you'll see it uh, here before the end of this decade, uh, you know, full scale. So by 2019, uh, 2020 timeframe? Yeah, yeah, 2019 or earlier kind of okay. production timeframe uh, on big engines. And then we're hoping we see uh, some four-cylinder engines shortly thereafter. Okay, great. All right, so let's move the discussion over to uh, connected vehicles and, and vehicle, to, vehicle to X or vehicle to everything, as, yes. as you guys prefer to yeah. call it. Yes. Um, so... Give me a little bit of an overview of what what are the the benefits and why why do we want to have yeah. cars talking to each yeah. other and talking to their right. environment? Yeah. So you know a lot of folks in this industry will call it the you know V to V right vehicle to vehicle communication. We do at Delphi like to call it vehicle to everything. So vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure, vehicle to pedestrian. So why would we do this? Why would you put vehicle connectivity on steroids? Right? Who would who would want to put the extra costs associated with that and the extra complexity, why would you do it? It is, again, all about safety. When you look at uh, some of the statistics for uh, collisions and injuries and deaths, you know, 2015, we had a 7% increase in traffic fatalities in the United States. 2016, another 10% increase over that. That's the first time in many years, I think a couple of decades, since we actually saw a turnaround, an increase uh, in, uh, in fatalities and, and injuries on the highway. You look at the numbers, 38,000 people died in our roads in 2015, and 4.4 million were injured on our roads. 94% of the accidents that resulted in those deaths and those injuries caused by what? Driver distraction? Well, driver, or just dri or driver or error. Yeah, driver which, error. Which yeah. a lot these days is driver distraction. distraction yeah. Exactly. It's the error made because they are distracted. So these technologies that we're talking about, these, uh, these connectivity technologies, uh, actually help the driver be less distracted or make less errors. It actually informs him before a problem exists. I mean, think uh, about increasing situational awareness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now today's look at today's radars and the lidars, or I shouldn't say lidars, radars and the cameras. Right? Mm -hmm. Those uh, devices are excellent, and they have gone you know a mile to really help uh, from a safety perspective. But oftentimes these things are finding a problem after it actually has occurred. So you're approaching an intersection, someone is running a red light, right? Your radar picks them up or your camera picks them up and you make an evasive maneuver or the car perhaps has automatic emergency braking and it's reacting to an error made by the other car. When you get to vehicle to vehicle communications, right? You actually forewarn the driver. The, the vehicles will know where they are. They'll know where uh, the other vehicle is, they'll know where the vehicle you're driving in is and they can uh, assess whether or not there can be a pending collision. If there is, it will alert the driver in advance of this of this collision, in advance of the actual situation to say, this has potential to happen. And therefore, take action now. Slow down, apply the brakes, you know, change lanes, do something so that you can avoid the collision and avoid the urgent situation in the first place. So it's more 
information, more more uh, driver awareness, so they make better decisions in the vehicle. So it really takes that great active safety portfolio of all those radars and all those cameras and puts over the top of it yet an additional layer, right, that really allows for better decision-making in the car. And we think with this better decision-making, of those uh, crashes I talked about earlier, about 80% of them can be eliminated uh, in the long run as you implement this type of technology broadly in the industry. And because what you're doing essentially is you're extending the the visibility beyond line of sight, right? right. Because you can you by get by transmitting messages back and right. forth between vehicles and infrastructure and pedestrians, you can be, be aware of things that you can't yet see. That's right. And and that the sensors can't see. That's right. The sensors can't see through the car in front of you. That's right. But signal these right. wireless signals can be sent from half a mile down the road that, or a quarter right. mile yeah, down yeah, the road. Good examples, you know, you're in a, or around a corner. Yeah, in a large city, uh, you're going into intersections, you have tall buildings on every corner. Your radar and your camera's not going to see through the building to see that car coming in a cross-traffic situation. But if the vehicles are communicating, they'll know they're coming and you can take the right action. Same goes on snowy multi-car pileups like what we recently saw in Michigan here last couple of weeks. Uh, if you saw five cars ahead, uh, you know, uh, a heavy braking, which would be a transmitted signal back to your car, you could slowly, you know, bring your car to a stop or avoid the spinning cars that may be in front of you and, and really try to minimize the number of cars in that accident. So, yeah, it really, it, it sees where no sensor can see today, for sure. And I think we're going to see the first application of this uh, early part of this year, 2017, coming from GM. Yeah, yeah Delphi's uh, in production now, actually, yeah. serving that market, and uh, will be introduced on Cadillac CTS for 2017. And so. then um, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration recently issued their notice of proposed rulemaking. That's right. And it looks like we're going to have have this mandatory on uh, new cars phased in starting around probably around 2020. Yeah, 2021 is uh, 50% uh, of the vehicles produced must, in fact, have this technology. By 2023, 100% of the vehicles produced must have this technology on board. So we think in five years at a 20 million sales rate per year, you put 100 million of these on the road on a 260 million car park in the U.S., you go an enormous way to make our roads much, much safer in just five years. And you know, even even when we move to um, autonomous vehicles, where now you've presumably taken most of the human error out of the equation, beta X or vehicle to everything can still be a, a big benefit even for those too, right? Absolutely. This is this is a subset of what you will have on, on an autonomous vehicle. Absolutely. You think about the complex control that has to happen on autonomous vehicles. If the vehicles are communicating with each other, it's a fantastic input for that control system, a really good and substantial of uh, additive benefit to the control system on that vehicle. All right. Well, Jim, thank you very much. And we're out of time now. I appreciate uh, the conversation. And we'll be talking to you again soon. Yeah, it's my pleasure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.